When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. The podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, we're back with Panacea Financial's Chief Strategy Officer, Dr. Ned Palmer, who is a legitimate real-life practicing physician and also a co-founder of this financial services company that is banking built for doctors by doctors who are also generously supporting inside the boards today. Dr. Palmer, what are some basic financial health tips for med students? That's a fantastic question, Patrick. I want to thank you so much for having me back uh, on the health system science uh, episodes with Inside the Boards. Now, we talked a little bit about financial literacy and how important financial literacy is. I think there's just a couple of basic uh, habits more than anything that med students can start to develop that will then follow them through the rest of their career. You know, we understand I think better than anybody that med students have a lot of very specific financial challenges. They're 80% take out loans for their education, usually totaling hundreds of thousands of dollars. um, And so effectively are living on a fixed income from the federal government. So that's why it's important to start with some behaviors now uh, that you can carry with you through into becoming a resident, a fellow, and then an attending that will, that will be healthy for you across your entire life cycle. The other feature that med students know better than anybody is how busy they are. You're getting dragged in and out of classrooms, simulated patient encounters, you're going into hospitals you've never been to before, being rotated around um, through different settings. It's really challenging when you have so much instability and so little time to take control of your finances. And that's where the other feature that we really want to emphasize is how there's ways to get control of your finances quickly. Um, because we know that time is, time is your most precious commodity, like it is for, for all physicians and physicians in training. So first and foremost, it's the most unexciting thing to talk about, and it's budgeting. And there's a couple different ways to budget. And that's why I hope I didn't just put everybody to sleep or get everybody to skip ahead. So I'm here with Dr. Beeman today, and we're going to do a very, very quick budgeting exercise. All right, let's do it. Patrick, you're interested in your own health, right? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, Yeah, more or less. Um, You know, and that's, that's understandable. Like all of us, we have an interest in our own health. So 
how often do you look at nutrition labels? You take a passing glance at nutrition labels to know what's going in your body? I do, actually, before I, yeah, before I decide mm-hmm. to eat something. I don't have that varied a diet, though. <laughs> but I do like to know what's going in. Totally, totally understandable. And I'm not saying that you look or most people look at every single nutrition label, but I find budgeting akin to checking the nutrition labels. You need to know what's going on with these complex systems like your health, like your diet, like your finances. And the first and best way to do that is just to start gathering data. All of us got into this and in some ways are scientists and a budget helps you as a scientist see things uh, in terms of opportunities, in terms of expenses, uh, just to give you a sense of what's going on. You don't necessarily need to act on it. I'm sure you look at plenty of nutrition labels and go, man, that's not as good for me as I want it to be, but I'm going to eat it anyways. But at least oh, yeah. you're making the ration decision there. <laughs> the right, yeah, at least. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so the, the budget isn't to stop you from living your life. It's not to tell you not to go out and get dinner. It's so that you understand and you're making an informed decision uh, when you do that. I, I could see that being really important uh, at the end of fourth year. And I, I was military and I still remember, you know, there's, it's just like really practical things you don't think about in med school as far as finances go and, and budgeting for like, uh, like for me, I was getting paid. I mean, it wasn't a lot, but like there was like a, a ended up being like a six week gap because of the way the military has trouble processing things in a speedy fashion um administratively uh but it was like six weeks without having like any income and Mm -hmm. i wasn't prepared for that so that sucked totally understandable and there are certain things that you could have done but even though the military affords you opportunities in terms of not having student loans and you get a small income you still struggle. And and when you struggle and don't have the resources, there's only so much that you can do off of having a meager savings. And so sometimes uh, what's important to know is where to get help when you need it and what kind of resources exist out there when you need help for these periods, you know, transition periods, moving, life expenses. Those of you that don't know, Dr. Beeman's got a bunch of kids. Those can be expensive. Very expensive. Like all of these surprises, Adam. <laughs> also something you want to look at before you go ahead and do it. Not that I regret <laughs> anything, of course, but like, you know, embrace that with eyes wide open. Wide open and take the rule of threes to it as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's exactly that part of having financial literacy, part of trying to educate yourself as a med student, as a resident or as an attending is understanding the landscape, understanding what's available to you out there and understanding where to go when you need help. Got it. So you would say top tip budget. Mm-hmm. Another top tip would be nowhere to get help. What about another one? So I think the last one is know what you can do to save time when it comes to managing your finances. Oh, that, oh that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like definitely one that um, as you start to, to make more of an income and things get way more complex and you've got like four kids each with their own medical needs and lessons and, you know, like the transactions, just like hundreds of transactions each month. Rather than just when I was younger, it was like rent, utilities, food, mm-hmm. and then uh, trips to the bookstore. You know, like it was simple then. 
it was it was a simpler time then but but some of those habits that you set up when times are simple so for instance some of the best time saving measures are automating payments when you can so not having to sit down and think about writing a check every month if you're paying rent the same way automating payments and then automating some of your budgeting can be incredibly helpful. It takes a little bit of time up front to set up both of those so that you know every month you make sure the check's going out to the right place, uh, but you save that time and energy not having to think about it every month. The same is true on budgeting. It takes a little bit of time to get it set up. And then once you've got uh, your accounts linked to a budgeting tool, it is much easier for you to keep track of where your finances are moving. And the earlier that you set these things up, the better off that you'll be. It's all about this habit forming at an early stage. And so instead of trying to start this when you've got four kids and hundreds of different uh, exchanges every month, start as a med student and do rent, utilities, phone, uh, and anything else. Try to automate where you can and learn where you can so that as you add things, it, it just becomes much easier. I like it. All right. So budget, know where to get help and uh, start to, I guess, budget time to save time uh, when it comes to managing your finances. If you guys want to learn how Panacea's doctors like Dr. Neb Palmer here are building a bank for doctors, go to panaceafinancial.com slash ITB. Panacea Financial, a division of Sona Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, the usual host and founder of this platform. I'm here today with uh, Dr. Vinny Aurora. Do you like uh, Vinny? I think I saw that on your uh, Twitter profile, at Future Docs. Yes, that's right. Nice to be here. At Future Docs. I'll have to ask you about that. Okay. But Dr. Vinny Aurora is here with uh, Dr. Chase Corvin. Um, Chase is a surgery resident. Both are from the University of Chicago. Dr. Corvin Chase is a general surgery resident at the University of Chicago. Uh, In addition to surgical training, which is hardcore, man, um, you also have degrees in economics and business administration, which having now taken a hold of a what has turned into somewhat of a company this uh um, inside the boards platform i can totally appreciate how useful that might be in medicine Um, but you've spent the last couple years researching um, healthcare system issues um, and uh, are part of the university of chicago uh, ignite team which is an interdisciplinary collaborative approach to quote, tackling challenges within healthcare uh, related to teaming, effective communications, length of stay, and readmissions. And that actually, uh, healthcare teams safety is kind of our topic today. And we have also have the pleasure of having Dr. Vinny Aurora, who is a hospitalist and the Herbert T. Abelson Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago. Uh, You are also the Associate Chief Medical Officer for the Clinical Learning Environment. And you, quote, bridge educational and hospital leadership um, to engage frontline staff in the institutional quality, safety, and value mission. both of you have very extensive experience and credentials. What I like to do, though, because we are more than our jobs, we are more even than our professions. And I'll start with Chase. Chase, what are what are you most proud of in your professional life background or life in general? 
Oh, wow. Um, so I, I sort of like the things I want to do in, um, in this role in medicine and in sort of the quality improvement safety teaming is, you know, not only improve uh, care for patients, which is, you know, the, the number one priority, but my hope is to also make the workforce and the experience of those working in healthcare better, more efficient, more satisfying so that uh, they can spend their time doing what's most important, which is taking care of patients. So that's kind of what I enjoy focusing projects on is how we can make the care of patients better for everybody. So, and, and this work that I've done with Ignite and um, Dr. Aurora and, and a lot of other projects in the hospital, that's kind of been the thing that I try to keep hold of as I'm doing the work. Got it. And people can uh, follow you on Twitter at Chase Corvin. Correct. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. Dr. Aurora, you're at Future Docs, um, but what are you most proud of and uh, what do you value most as part of your mission in life and all that good stuff? Well, that's an easy question since uh, professionally, the things thing that I'm most proud of is the number of people I've trained and um, all of the great ways in which they're contributing and impacting. And I sort of think as you progress in your career, um, you move from thinking about what you do to who you actually empower um, and enable to make change. And so um, so that's really one of the reasons why I'm excited to be here is to support Chase. Uh, but also uh, one of the reasons why I've really enjoyed coaching the Ignite teams at University of Chicago Medicine is that it's really bringing together diverse teams, um, not only in uh, profession, but in background, uh, physicians, nurses, trainees, all sorts of folks, medical students, um, and having them make an impact and really grow and realize that they can make an impact on the care that they deliver and on um, each other and on the um, sort of morale of the team. And so that's been exciting for me. Cool. Why at Future Docs? So I got started in Twitter in 2009, which um, Chase will be like, that's a long time ago. And, um, and so uh, at the time, you know, we didn't really start with our full names. It wasn't really like this legitimate platform at the time. Uh, and so it was sort of an experimental platform. And um, many of us started using monikers to describe who we were. And I um, was an associate program director. I was a career advisor. So I, I dealt with a lot of medical education advising. And so that was where I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll try this platform to reach other people in this in this way. And so- um, I kind of figured. Yeah, it just kind of stuck with me. So I haven't changed my name, uh, but I figure it's still, you know, I still- still stand for um, future training and for <laughs> doctors, uh, uh, but also for all team members, but I've kept the name. I've always wondered that myself. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So you have it on record now. <laughs> yes, we're here to uh, satisfy people's curiosity uh, for sure. So, you know, thanks to the AMA and Elsevier for providing us uh, content for this health system science series. As I mentioned before, we are discussing uh, kind of safety and, and teaming today, um, teams in healthcare. And that being said, the AMA was kind enough to connect us to you guys because of this um, project that um, you got involved in, which uh, I guess a summary would be related, I don't know, the, what do you call it, MD slash advanced practice um, 
practitioner in-room button? Yeah, it originally started as the MD in-room button. Got it. So clarify my, uh, help me understand. I was trying to think of something really valuable to say, like, um, like Socrates, take me from a place to ign of ignorance to a place of knowledge. Well, so this was actually um, one of the uh, the learning lessons in the process. Actually, was you know when we first uh, and I actually, in full disclosure, I was not a part of the team when the the button first was created, but I was brought on board by one of my uh, surgery colleagues and Dr. Aurora, who really kind of started the button. But you know, we we implemented it as a way for the surgical teams to touch base with nursing during patient rounds. Uh, and what we realized is that the surgery teams aren't just made up of MDs. We have a lot of uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants who are really integral to these teams. And one of them was actually an early adopter of the button uh, for us. And she, you know, mentioned it, you know, you know, this should be MDAPP in room because it's, you know, we really want everybody who's part of the team to utilize the button. So very early on, we switched it to the MDAPP and room button, which is a little bit more of a mouthful to say, but I think more important in terms of encouraging um, all of our providers to to utilize this tool. If you're in the military, you could like just call it the MDAP button since they do weird things with the pronunciation of acronyms. I like it. <laughs> just I'm, That's free. You guys can have that one. <laughs> I like it. So are we talking about a like <laughs> a legit just like button, like press here? What's going on with this? Yeah. So uh, prior, to, we, this all started, um, I would say, almost a year and a half ago, and maybe even two years. Um, so prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, one of the issues we highlighted at, at our institution was um, communication amongst the surgery teams. We did this as part of, um, I believe it was a Kaizen event that was focusing on uh, discharge delays at our institution. And we were trying to uh, improve efficiency of care and getting patients out the door quickly um, who didn't need to you know, be in our, our hospital any longer and, and to free up that bed for another patient. And I think in sort of the focusing on the vent, we realized there was a root cause uh, of some of our issues and that was just communication amongst the teams early in the day. And so each of our rooms in our main inpatient care center are, they're equipped with what I've sort of termed a communication console. I'm not sure what the official name for it is, but it's a, a button or it's a panel in every patient room that has a list of buttons. And previously, these were things that said, you know, food tray delivered, transport at the bedside, um, really, they could be customized to anything that you wanted it to be. Uh, and what happens is when these buttons are pressed, they send a text alert to the phone of the nurse caring for that patient. And so the team created a button. And, and actually, I think it was adapted from our OBGYN colleagues at our institution originally. So we, we utilized a tool that they had, had used and created this MD, now APP and room button. And the purpose of the button was to really let the nursing, uh, our nursing colleagues know when we were at the bedside rounding on patients to, to provide an opportunity for face-to-face -face communication uh, at the bedside. And, you know, the surgery teams round very early, they round very quickly, 
And then they disappear to the operating rooms or clinics, and they can be difficult to reach during the day. And so when you're trying to provide patient education, when you're trying to arrange transportation for patients to leave the hospital, these are all things that you know our nursing colleagues are really inter- integral in doing. And we weren't letting them know early enough in the day that this patient might be going home and you know, for them to really do those things to, to help the patient get out in a reasonable amount of time. So that, that's where this sort of button came about. And we piloted it on our surgical units over the course of a, about a year um, and saw a lot of success across the board. Yeah. And so this makes a lot of sense to me why um, uh, Dr. Hamoud from the AMA suggested you guys come on and um, discuss specifically uh, teaming um, in, in healthcare. And the the fact of the matter is it, this is, I think, a good instance of the thing that seems to be I don't know, the the energy that moves throughout all of the systematization of this third pillar of medical education, health system science, and that is systems thinking. Because you have this problem, you've got a bunch of moving parts, and your problem here is a lack of communication as identified by, I'm sure, a number of people involved in the frontline process uh, that, that uh, you were describing. And then um, how does this button improve or address uh, the issue that you guys were trying to uh, resolve over and above other potential solutions? Why is this one the best because I could see like text messaging your doctor on like a Doc Halo um, is a, a program that uh, one of my hospitals I go to uses. I don't like it, but. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I think so. To your point, there are many, many different ways to um, try to resolve or to improve, you know, communication within the hospital system. And you know, I don't think there's any one silver bullet uh, for anywhere. I think it's very dependent upon, you know, your institution, the institutional culture, um, what resources you have available. And actually, within our institution alone, we actually have sort of that issue because one of our patient care areas doesn't have the button. And one of our patient care, you know, our main area does, but one of our significant, you know, other units doesn't have access to the button. And so we've had to kind of adapt different solutions to different areas and then within different teams too. Um, as you know, we may get to, you know, when we, when the COVID pandemic hit, you know, we were really only doing this on some of the surgical units uh, and we had just piloted on a new surgical unit to try and roll it out, you know, roll it out bigger. And then everything got switched around, units closed, patients got shifted around, we prepared, you know, COVID units for patients. And, you know, this initiative really sort of went out the window, and we had to go back to the drawing board with the rest of the uh, Ignite team, which is a group of uh, nurses, managers, patient advocates, residents, uh, hospital leadership, and we had to think of other ways that we could utilize this tool and that's when we decided to roll it out sort of hospital-wide uh, at that point so that all teams uh, could have access to this tool. I think why this originally was used, I think because it was, a, it was sort of low-hanging fruit in a sense. It was a, it was a piece of equipment that already 
existed in the hospital. And it was an innovative way to, to use something that already existed to change the culture within, you know, our institution. And that's, that's a culture of, you know, effective, frequent communication between, you know, the nursing and, and the care teams. And we ultimately, it doesn't matter how many times somebody pushes the button, what we ultimately care about is whether this tool leads to more frequent touch bases occurring on the teams. And, and so that's really what one of the metrics we're, we're tracking. Um, as we, we go forward. Now, Dr. Aurora, I, I can chime in. Yeah, I was going to say, as the an associate chief medical officer for the clinical learning environment, mm-hmm. where you know y- y- your very job description probably indicates how or why you got involved in this. So, yeah, <laughs> I uh, well, I'll say that um, I believe in empowering frontline teams to come up with the solution. And so, um, you know, as a coach, I don't have the the answer in a stone tablet to, to give to anyone. It's really the answers that the frontline is going to bring up. And I view my job as helping empower frontline clinicians, including residents, to figure out how to problem solve, but then scale up those solutions that might work. And so I think that's a great example. And one of the interesting things about the MD APP button in the room or the console is that I've worked at this hospital for over 20 years. And and so did some of our nurse leaders. And we had no idea what this console was. And it turned out that in our main tower, it was in every room in the tower. And it was a bedside nurse at in the OB group who said, you know, I, I think there's a potential here because when the when the food people come and they bring the tray, they tell us that their food is here and they press the button and it alerts to our phone. And so the big challenge in OB and in surgery was very similar was we don't know when the physicians are on the unit because in um, OBGYN, they needed to run over to deliver, you know, to be in labor and delivery. Um, and so when they were on the mother baby unit, um, it was like a short amount of time that that the nurse needed to touch base about those discharge decisions about those moms that could go home. Similarly with surgery, um, you know, they're rounding at night. The night nurses are still rounding when Chase comes in in the morning, you know, and so as a medicine doc, that was fascinating to me, which is, um, you know, the, the, the morning residents are rounding when the night nurses are on <laughs> and they wanted to be able to accelerate their discharges. Um, but the night nurses, uh, by the time the daytime nurses come, uh, these guys are already in the operating room. And so how do we get that communicate? It's not just doing the touch base, but also so closing the loop so that um, what was the big problem we wanted to solve? And the background of this big problem, as Chase alluded to, was this Kaizen event, which we knew we had very long length of stays. That um, And why is that a problem? Well, we are a place in the south side of Chicago that's at 99 to 100% capacity on a lot of days pre-COVID. Um, and so these are important things to think about in terms of efficiency. So when, and access to care and, and making sure we could actually see more patients that were waiting in the ED to be seen and get them the beds they needed. And what we found was that it was actually not that we were going to save a day length of stay, but that it was hours. If we could just kind of slim down the, the number of hours that next morning, the morning of discharge, uh, patients reported to us in the Kaizen that they were waiting all day, uh, partly because because sometimes the surgery team was in the OR or the 
OB team hadn't rounded or the medicine team hadn't seen the patient, um, you know, hadn't figured out what to do yet. And so, um, so this was a way of, you know, we had a burning platform. We needed to move on communication and tight, tighter communication around discharge. But it was uh, what I really don't like is going to a group of people and saying, work harder, discharge before noon, you know, get it done. You know, um, that sometimes falls flat, especially right now in the COVID era. And so what you want to do is say, work smarter. What tool can I give you that I can, um, that we can enable you together to do this? And so um, the nice thing about the, the button is it doesn't have to be a button. It could be anything. Um, and certainly in our uh, one hospital that we don't have a button, they are doing a great job. They're doing something else. Uh, but the, the idea is we're going to reform the process. We're going to redesign the process. And in this case, we're going to leverage an existing technology that's in every room in the adult tower. And instead of having tray and room, you know, um, um, you know button, we're going to have the MD or advanced practice uh, provider is in the room as an alert that goes to the nurse's phone to let them know that somebody is there seeing the patient. And that all makes sense. Um, I will ask, can you clarify what a Kaizen um, event is for our audience, most of whom are first through three and a half year med students? Sure. So, um, a Kaizen, yeah, I, I think, yeah, go ahead. Chase, do you want to take that one? No, Dr. Rory, you've done more. I, I wasn't sure. Go for it. There you go. Good, good leadership uh, with uh, Dr. Rory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'll have Chase correct me if I'm wrong. A Kaizen event is um, a comes from Japanese lean transformation, and the idea is that we're going to make something better, and so that's technically what the the you know Japanese um, where where it comes in multi-stakeholder event um, that where we examine a process and we go from the current state to the future state um, through a through engaging stakeholders. Uh, one of the interesting things about University of Chicago with this of two parts, teams that are working together to improve care in the um, for the patients they serve uh, in nine service lines. And so Chase is highlighting what we have done in surgery, but we've also expanded the button use to all the other service lines or some form of a touch base. Um, and then the other part of Ignite is integrating residents and fellows into the existing lean operations on Kaizen events that go on at University of Chicago. And sometimes the two are connected. And so here's an example of where we had a Kaizen event to engage frontline clinicians in an interprofessional improvement event um, around how to improve discharges, which then we took all of the recommendations out of that and then sort of had some of the leaders of that event, including Chase as a resident leader catalyze that work through the ignite teams if you will this is a question too for dr aurora um i'm going to be careful to ask this because it, it's <laughs> i'm on the hot seat <laughs> yeah it's 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 kind of a delicate one i think so i've heard you mention very specifically that you care about um the success of frontline healthcare teams and we're talking about teams here which you know uh, wonder to say doctors aren't it when it comes to taking care of patients. There's more to healthcare and doing well for those we serve than just us. Um, go figure. The AMA has this hashtag I've seen, stop scope creep. 
And there are some kind of vociferous people, not necessarily associated with this uh, AMA uh, campaign, but who, I don't know if the right word would be dismissive. They're dismissive of um, advanced practice uh, professionals. Um, they're leery of them, something of that nature. What, why should doctors, there we go, or med students, residents not be afraid of uh, advanced practice uh, uh, professionals. What what a, what makes a team work, I guess, would be another broader way to say it. I don't know. I mean, I am probably putting you on the hot seat. Like, <laughs> solve the problem of advanced practice practitioners and doctors fighting, please. I'll start off and then maybe Chase can offer some of his expertise from his frontline experience. My um, experience is that, uh, at least from, from the national level is that we have to get our act together and work as a team. And there's no time like the pandemic to highlight that, um, you know, we, we cannot be, you know, I know that AMA is sort of the house of medicine and um, reflects um, multi-professionals, multi-specialties of physicians. Um, we also need to advocate as a healthcare um, you know, as, as healthcare workers, you know, um, especially during the pandemic. I think the challenge comes when um, there's obviously turf battles here and there about who's going to do what. More often than not, I think one of the key things to remember is that there's plenty of work to be done, too much work to be done. And a lot of times when I have noticed is that um, it's not scope creep. It's really understanding scope of practice that um, is really the, the concern is that uh, many times, for example, in academic teaching hospitals, we have residents that are doing work that's well below the standard of what they should be doing. Um, and partly, we haven't liberated enough of the advanced practice providers and nurses to be working at a level of scope of practice that they could be more independent, you know, and doing things that um, that could help offload the residents. So I want to highlight that Every organization is different, and certainly everybody's practice is different, but I believe there is a middle ground in which um, there is a way to optimize teams when we can actually figure out how can we get everybody to live up to their scope of practice and not actually worry about the scope creep, if you will. Um, and at least that's my experience in our academic institution where you know, I believe our residents actually welcome working with advanced practice uh, providers and helping them offload their work. Um, and Chase, I'll, I'll see if that gels with what you think, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, it's something that, you know, one, I, wanna, I want to emphasize what you said about, you know, figuring out how to best utilize everybody within the system. Because I, I think that, um, there are certainly not uh, a lack of patients that need care. Uh, and I would say in that sense, there's not currently a surplus of care. So I, I, I do think that this is a great time for the healthcare system to, you know, not, not just ours, but every healthcare system to rethink, you know, how they, you know, utilize their workforce so that people are you know, really working to the highest of their abilities to care for patients. And also, I think that's how people will get the most job satisfaction out of what they're doing. 
when I was looking at where I wanted to do residency, you know, the, the advanced practice provider workforce was actually a role that it played in there because I wanted to go somewhere where, you know, I had team members who could help offload some of the work so that I could focus more on my education. But at the same time, I didn't want to go somewhere where there were so many people that I wouldn't learn how to do kind of the basics of being an intern. Having done it, having gone through intern year, I think pretty quickly I realized, you know, how much our advanced practice providers do to free up my time to spend where I need to be, which is, you know, in the operating room, uh, learning how to be a surgeon or in clinic, taking care of patients or and so and it's a constantly evolving thing. We've, you know, as we, as residents, as we start to get stretched and stressed a little bit by some of the non-educational things that, you know, we we could be doing. Formally called scut work. <laughs> Formally called scut work. Uh, I do think those are great opportunities for advanced practice providers and to help. Now, I'm not... Which is why it's formerly called scut work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, again, I think you have to, you have to work on this from all sides because I, I don't know that people get their nurse practitioner or their PA to do all this gut work. But I, I, I do think that we can figure out how everybody in this system can work together um, so that everybody's efficiently working, enjoying their jobs, taking care of patients, providing good quality care, and you know having a little bit of time outside of the hospital as well. All right. So... This will be for both of you, but we'll we'll start with Chase um, since he's closer. <laughs> How are med students underutilized within the uh, in quotes work force in quotes because you get paid to work? How how are med students uh, perhaps not as appreciated or utilized to the level they could be uh, nowadays? Are there ways? Absolutely, uh, and I think a lot of that you know, I would say falls on me as a resident and, you know, even in the system as a whole. I mean, I, part of being a resident is also learning to be a teacher mm-hmm. and, and it's hard. It's hard work. It's very easy when you are going about your day, just trying to learn how to be a surgeon to get your non-educational work requirements out of the way uh, to, to do all these things. And then you have somebody who you know, you can really make or break their experience and you can really have a strong influence in their career choices in, you know, maybe they have a patient when they're a resident that was exactly the same as a patient they saw as a medical student and they can go on to provide better care because you taught them how to take care of that patient. So it's very hard work. And I think there's some role models that I have in some of my chief residents who, who really take the time to make somebody feel like they're a part of the team for the short period of time that they're on the team. And then I have other, um, you know, people I've worked with who really just kind of, you know, they're, they're cordial, they're nice, they, but they don't, they really don't put in the time and effort to teach. So, so I think ways that you can utilize medical students is one, teaching them how to do certain skills. For instance, I think, you know, even things on surgery, like IVs, you know, a lot of medical students finish medical school not knowing how to do an IV. Well, I've done two. Well, there you go. I, I, but I, I can tell you that when it comes time on the floors for, you know, a patient, if the nursing can't get an IV, nobody can get an IV, they're going to call the resident. And if the resident says, I've done two, or I don't know how to do this, then the patient's going to get a central line or they're going to get a pick line. But if you've got a medical student who you teach early on, 
here's how you do it. Practice on as many patients as you have the opportunity to get good at this. You know, that's a chance where down the line, you know, they might be able to do something to, to take better care of a patient. Actually, that's, that's kind of a good idea too, because I imagine, whereas in many institutions, it seems nowadays, a lot of the things medicines used to be allowed to do, um, they're, they're not, um, even documenting sometimes, which blows my mind since that's like 95% of what we all do. Um, but like, yeah, I guess you could probably take some initiative and, um, hook up with the nurses if it's cool with your, um, attendings or residents be like, can I do some of these like IVs or something, get my hands dirty? Um, also, that's probably way more fun than watching a surgery resident uh, document, um, I imagine. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in the operating room, there's other things, you know, suturing. Yeah. You know, a lot of times at the end of a three, four hour case, you know, we're like, we just got to get this case done. But at the same time, I think that's the time to stop and say, no, this this student has been interested. They uh, want to learn. They're here. They've watched this three four hour case too. Like now is their time, and 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 you teach them. And I, and I think yeah, you know, sending medical students to talk to patients. We don't get to spend enough time with patients during the day. We don't. You know, we spend five minutes in the room. So so giving patient yeah. you know students ownership of of their patient and saying, you know, you can improve the care of this patient by going in there every day and spending 10, 15, 20 minutes like learning as much as you can about the patient finding ways that we can provide better care, communicating with the nursing staff, with the MD and room button. That's a great example of where we realized the medical students could play a great role. And on the surgery services, we task oh, yeah. the medical students with saying, hey, this is something you can do. Like hit this button, get the nurses to the bedside. Let's talk together. Yeah. So, so those are ways that I can think of. I'm, I'm sure Dr. Aurora has a lot more ways, but. Yeah. Dr. Aurora, comments on uh, the role of the medical students in teams? Yes. So I think that med students can play really important value-added roles, but it's important that we get out of the deficit model where medical students, even themselves, will often be like, oh, I'm just a medical student. And so really, we need to empower them to feel like valued members of the team and recognize that they're valued members of the team. And we've seen that in the pandemic. I think the you know, the robust response to the AMA health system science challenge has been an example of that. And in our project, for example, as Chase mentioned, um, our medical students have been pretty active. Uh, my own medical students that I round with, you know, they touch base with the nurses and they use that as a, a learning opportunity, for example. So, um, so I think those are all really uh, great ways that we can think about this. Well, this is real life. So, um, well, thanks for that. I appreciate both of your perspectives. Um, and uh, we have a few cases to go through. You guys still good on time? Just want to make sure. Yes. Let's dive into a little more practical applications, something a little more reminiscent of USMLE-esque um, learning. And that is our cases brought to you by Elsevier, um, which, yeah, thanks, Elsevier. You're always helping us out. USMLE Step 2 Secrets Podcast and the Crush Step 1. We love Elsevier. I'll go ahead and read this case, and then um, I guess I will uh, leave it to Chase to take up the answer or punt it to Dr. Aurora. You want to do that? Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll be like the lifeline. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, who wants to be a millionaire? <laughs> yep. Like yeah, exactly, it. exactly. <laughs> 
sometimes sometimes we reverse it and like people pimp me just so i can have like the um uh the traumatic recall of being a medical student as an attending you know so you never forget we don't want to do that <laughs> <laughs> all right so in this one we've got a community hospital which is providing inpatient surgical care using interprofessional teams that include one a physician next a nurse next occupational therapist social worker and a pharmacist each morning team members meet to review patient progress and assign care tasks for the day during today's meeting the team's nurse reports that in addition to his usual duties he has been spending large amounts of time on other aspects of patient care he's helped family members identify and contact local nursing homes and rehabilitation facilities to expedite hospital discharges and yesterday, he spent 45 minutes teaching a patient who recently had a knee replacement how to use an extendable reaching device. And our interrogative here is, which of the following concepts in team-based care best addresses this common situation? And man, this case sounds a little bit like what you guys were describing. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. So, all right, answer choices. We got A, um, excessive autonomy, B, role blurring c ineffective collaboration and d failure to adhere to team ethics so uh, just a reminder which of the following concepts in team-based care best addresses the situation in the stem dr corvin which is it uh so i i think this is a good example of uh b role blurring uh and the reason you know i say that is this, as you mentioned ties a lot in with what we were discussing earlier, which is, I think that, um, you know, the nurse is potentially doing things that aren't within the best sort of scope of what they could be doing or should be doing and caring for the patient. And that perhaps there are other resources uh, that could be utilized at the institution to provide these other needs of the patient, because I think these are all very important things in the care of the patient. But you know, not necessarily the best way that this nurse should be spending their time uh, when they have, you know, lots of other things that they need to be doing as well. But this isn't the same as being like, not my job. No, no, I think, I think uh, this is very much, you know, ultimately, it's, it's everybody's job, you know, from the time the patient walks in the door to the time they leave, to provide the best care for that patient in, in you know, whatever they need. But I think there are efficient ways to use resources. And I think that finding out the best mix of those resources to provide certain needs for the patients ultimately will lead to better care, uh, more efficient care. And I, I think job satisfaction too amongst you know the, the team members. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. That, uh, that makes sense. Anything to add to that, Dr. Aurora? No, I think uh, what I'd add to it is that the... Uh, you know, when I when I see teams go awry, you know, when people are not, you know, kind of gelling and figuring out how to do their best work, it's often because of this role blurring, you know, when people don't know each other's roles. And in another part of our, uh, one of our other Ignite teams, internal medicine has been doing a lot of that work with multidisciplinary rounds, which is working with case managers and social workers and physical therapists and um, others to figure out how to do a safe discharge for a patient. If you don't know what those team members do, that can be really stressful. And so, um, and so I do think this is actually a really, really critical concept in team-based care. Absolutely. 
And to piggyback on that, Dr. Rory, this is actually sort of hits something that I've learned in residency, which is how much I didn't know <laughs> about what other members of the team, you know, their scope of practice was, or, you know, we, we, we talked about this Kaizen event that we had. Um, this one was looking at readmissions and I learned so much from that about what our social workers do and know and, and what our case managers do and know and can be doing and should be doing. And it, it was, it was just a whole new world of, <laughs> to me. And I, I, I don't think that's always clear uh, in medical school until you spend a lot of time with some of these other team members to, to really ask questions and learn what they do and can do and should be doing. Yeah. And arguably it's one of those things you can probably get by without learning to your detriment as, as well. Cause I know there's, there's, definitely instances where I will admit where I'm like, <laughs> who's responsible for that? I know it's not me, but <laughs> I'm not sure who to ask or delegate this particular task to. Um, so definitely worth, you know, paying attention. And I suppose you could do something crazy, like asking somebody what, you know, their role is, if you don't know, like maybe Maybe respiratory therapy versus nursing, uh, my versus like a patient care technician. Like you just get into healthcare, first day on a hospital floor, you might not really know uh, what what are the lines um, that that define that person's particular scope of uh, practice and sphere of uh, influence. So, I, I think people really like that question too. I think it makes I think people feel valued when right? when you show an interest in what they're doing you know, to care for patients. I, I really do. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. I mean, especially, you know, even the person who's sitting at the desk at the unit, you know, uh, you know, could be a valued member of your team who's going to help you with appointments and knowing when the patient's off the floor. So I think it's great to introduce yourself and um, establish also what you do. You know, like if you're a medical student, you know, you can highlight your name and your um, team that you're on and that you're starting and how long you're going to be there for. I mean, these are all just important parts of good practice that will carry you through um, your entire career. And it, I mean, isn't it funny though? Like if you're, I mean, it can be a little intimidating for sure, but I've had medical students um, at the labor and delivery units who will go in and all they do is be like up to the, you know, the unit clerk, hey, I'm, you know, uh, Sarah, I'm a medical student, exactly what you said. Um, just introduce themselves. Literally, that's it. Um, but just that little, um, you know, point of interper uh, interpersonal interaction, I mean, it does worlds of good. And it's like, it just makes the work environment better. It adds to the sense of being part of a common mission, being part of a team. Um, and I, I think probably opens up that ability to know what those other roles are, because that person who sits at the desk on the unit is super important, like like you say. I mean, the, you can't put orders in the patient. You can't know the patient's name necessarily without, God forbid, having to just go ask them um, if they're not already into you know the computer um, EHR. Agreed. Encourage. I, I would encourage everyone to just take that leap and be like, yo, I'm Patrick Beeman. I'm a med student here to learn. And uh, anything you can do to help me do that, uh, I would appreciate it. And I'll help you with whatever you need. Um, probably get you uh, uh, an honors in that clerkship or at least set you well on your way. Uh, Agreed. <laughs> Certainly, I think, you know, this is where um, 
it sounds ridiculous, but sometimes people for, can forget the basics. And it's the basics that are ex- actually really important to kind of creating that learning environment, if you will, that needs to that you need to thrive in as a student. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next case, we have a 61 year old female presents to the ED with a chief complaint of chest heaviness and difficulty breathing. She has a history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and gout. After obtaining a history, the nurse establishes an IV, draws blood work, and obtains an ECG per hospital protocol. She shows the ECG to the attending, who's concerned about an acute ST elevation myocardial infarction. The physician quickly gathers the nurse, resident physician, care tech, and triage nurse and assigns each with responsibilities to care for the patient and activate the cardiac cardiac catheterization lab for immediate patient transport. That sounds like a real, real life situation. And so our interrogative here is which of the following team communication strategies best describes this scenario? And it's A, a huddle, B, call out, C, brief, D, debrief, and E, a concerned, uncomfortable safety. Uh, Chase, walk, walk me through. I know this is a uh, an important concept, but what's our correct answer? You know, I, I can you imagine being on the USMLE and being like, oh yeah, yeah, this, I, I got this, you know, case. They're going to ask me like, what's the next lab I'm going to order or which of these is going to be elevated. And, and you're like, you know, <laughs> you're like just ready to, to click on um, troponins or something. And then they ask one of these uh, questions. You're like, oh man, no. I should have paid attention in my uh, patient professionalism uh, uh, course. <laughs> yep. You're, yep. Yep. No, I agree. But I, I think it fits well with Dr. Aurora said about sort of remembering the basics. And this is kind of a, I think a basic of teamwork. And um, so I think the answer is huddle, which, you know, I think is an important concept. And honestly, I think it, in a lot of ways ties in with what we were trying to do with the MDN room button, which was create this touch base um, so that, you know, that members of the team could get together and and they could, you know, one discuss sort of the overall plan uh, and the overall goals and, and what, you know, what the important things were to accomplish in that period of time. They can also share information with one another, ask questions uh, and, and so I think this is a very valuable part of, of working as a team because until you all get on the same page and in, in terms of priorities for care of the patient, what needs to get done, when it needs to get done and so forth, um, you know, it's hard to efficiently take care of a patient. Um, so I, I would go with, uh, a huddle. And you would be correct. And I know this because we have the cases before us, but sorry, Dr. Aurora. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. I, it's always good to look at the detractors to see what the answer wasn't. And so I think, you know, um, brief yeah. and debrief are sort of pre-event, post-event. Yeah. The most attractive distractors. Yeah. Exactly. And so probably couldn't decide between either of those because they there was, a, you know, no set um, start of the day brief or a debrief. Uh, like you would think if somebody had a code, there would be a code debrief. And then concerned and comfortable safety is a strategy that's been put forth by the team steps model of training from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which is a way um, 
you know, if somebody, um, you know, when they are in the operating room and they have noticed that um, there has been a wrong site surgery, for example, when they go back to those cases, they find that somebody actually had concern, but they didn't voice it. And so that's a, the concerned, uncomfortable safety method is sort of a way for you to express your concern for a timeout. Um, so I am concerned, I am uncomfortable, you know, um, I have a question about safety. So that as a student, for example, we do have, uh, we do teach this, which is, you know, really, it's all eyes and ears to help keep safety in front and center. And, and that means that everyone needs to be able to speak up. And so teams that don't have that ability to have the safety of anyone on the team speak up are the ones that are going to make mistakes. And so it's an important concept, but this is certainly definitely the the idea of a huddle where people are coming together for um, for a specific um, set of actions to coordinate, if you will. Um, and it certainly does remind me of a lot of our Ignite work, um, as Chase uh, mentioned, um, is to really huddle to help facilitate a discharge, for example, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right, we got one more here. And so <clears throat> this one is Dr. Thompson is the new chief executive officer for the Xavier School for Gifted Medical Students and uh, University Hospitals, the large community-based health system affiliated with a medical school uh, through her meetings and observations, it becomes clear that hospital administrators, physicians, and other members of the care delivery team are not working together as a team to achieve better outcomes for patients and populations. She assigns Dr. Richards, uh, Dr. Logan Richards, the chief patient experience officer, to develop a plan to transform the culture of the health system to think like and function as a team. All right, so the question to consider here is, it's a little complex, so, uh, you know, note. To achieve her goal, Dr. Richards must work to optimize team effectiveness. Evidence from fields outside of medicine reveals that effective team interactions are comprised of cognitive, affective, and behavioral processes. Which of the following best represents a cognitive team process? So we've got A, team development of a shared mental model of goals and responsibilities. B, development of team interdependence leading to cohesion. Which of the following represents a cognitive team process? Is it C, similar perceptions about team efficacy? Or D, allocation of resources to perform tasks and adapt to changing goals? So of those four answer choices, Dr. Corvin, which of the following of those uh, represents a cognitive team process? Yeah, so I think of A, so the team um, development of a shared mental model of goals and responsibilities. You know, I think of this as sort of the team being on the same page, if you will. So knowing what um, the end goals are, thinking about what, um, what the goal is or what the goal looks like uh, and what kind of the outcome is that you're looking for. Ultimately, that's sort of a everybody's on the same wave, wavelength, if you will. Everybody's, you know, from a cognitive standpoint, thinking in the same direction so that as the team works to accomplish whatever their goal is, they're all, you know, working in the same direction as one another. So 
in your particular um, context, for instance, the implementation implementation of the uh, MDAPP uh, in room button, um, that sort of shared goal would be um, facilitating discharge processes. Uh, is that fair to say? Actually, I think yes, um, but I think or facilitating communication in order to. Yeah, I think bigger picture, it's it's really facilitating a touch base to just talk about patient care. And this was something we actually struggled with early on was people had different perceptions of what the purpose of the button was. And so the residents wouldn't push the button because they felt like they didn't have time to stop and wait or and at the same time the you know the nurses would sometimes come to the room and say why are you pushing the button if you don't need anything. And so we had to really reframe the whole goal, which was to have this touch base as a team. And that was a way of sort of, um, it was a cognitive process to get everybody with that same goal in mind. Now, have you had any med students, um, when you're involving them in this process, respond like with when the boss says, push a button on a guy, push a button? Um, <laughs> do you get that reference? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I don't... Uh, I think in general... They will now. If somebody's listening from the <laughs> University of Chicago, please do that. <laughs> I think, so one, we have, we have great medical students and I've, I've got nothing but like sort of positive attitudes towards the button. But part of it is you do need to help people understand why they're doing something. If they, if they are, yeah. think that they're just doing something, you know, to check a box, I think you're, you're much less successful at creating cultural change and organizational change if people don't understand and follow why you're doing something and how that can lead to better patient care and better, you know, teamwork. So I do think, you know, when you're trying to create a new project or do something like this, you have to really make it clear to everybody and get everybody excited and on board about why you're trying to do something. And I think that that goes with all quality improvement is really thinking about that shared mental model of why. Um, and so I think Chase Beautiful of the, you know, in, in even why we started Ignite, which led to the implementation of the MDAPP and the room button and the socially distanced touch base is to create a shared mental model of what nurses do and what residents do, for example, in terms of their roles and responsibilities. And so this is something that is really germane and core to really high performing teams. A lot of the other detractors are too, you know, making sure you have some interdependence and, you know, ability to perceive that you will be effective, for example, those are all important for teams. Um, but this shared mental model is really key. And I think if, for example, it goes back to that other case, why huddle really to create a shared mental model? You know, why, what are we doing and how are we going to make sure we're not going to run into pitfalls or run all over each other, you know, is to, to have that um, shared mental model so we know how we're going to execute and that has to happen over and over in our organizations every single day for every single patient. And so that's why communication is so important. Absolutely. Well, to the both of you, thank you so much for your time. If there are no other comments, um, then I wish you both well. And, uh, you know, anytime you want to come on and talk about literally anything, um, we'd be happy to have you uh, come teach med students around the country about, you know, anything, teams, uh, anything internal medicine, general surgery, you name it. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely.